Hello and welcome back to the Book of Jude. So glad you take your time to be with us. I hope everyone's having a good, what month is this? May. May is almost over. June is coming, depending on what time this episode gets put out. <laughs> but um, uh, we have been going through some problem passages in Genesis, specifically with Abraham and his story, his wife Sarah, Hagar. Actually, today we're going to do some summarizing from last time. Also, we're going to, uh, well, specifically, we're talking, we're, we're in Genesis 17 and 18. I'm not going to read it all in its entirety due to lack of time. I suspect and trust you'll do that yourself. But uh, we're going to be talking about the name change from Abraham, or from Abram, or Abram to Abraham, and from Sarai to Sarah. Uh, we will be talking about the covenant more, of course, more covenant, uh, the circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant, Abraham's response to this, uh, Abraham and Sarah have a similar response and, um, uh, to the promised, uh, Isaac and, uh, we're still, Abraham is still concerned about Ishmael. Uh, we also have in, in Genesis 18, three visitors coming, uh, angels, men, God, pre-incarnate Jesus, theophany, Christophany. We're going to talk about all that. We're going to do a little bit of reading in between the lines, doing a little reaching, assuming uh, why Sarah's in the tent and not out there with Abraham. And this could mean something that you may have never heard before, but John Walton brings it up in his commentary. Of course, we're using the John Walton, the NIV application commentary on Genesis. We're using the study Bible, uh, my study Bible notes. So get out your pen, your paper, your Bible. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 17. Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the Hagar option. Before we dive into the next two chapters, let's just have a little review I want to um, draw your attention to what was in the minds of Abram, Sarai, Hagar, those people in that time, because it's very easy for us to um, have the complete story and be in our time right now, 2021, and look back and say, what were you thinking? We must realize that the ancient world did not understand that conception was the result of male sperm fertilizing the female egg. They simply thought that the, the male deposited the seed in the woman, who then acted as an incubator for the child. They certainly had no understanding of genetics, though they undoubtedly realized that often children had characteristics of the mother. Nevertheless, one incubator would do as well as another. We have already established that the, this was a legitimate option in society of that time. But does it suggest a lack of faith on Abraham's part? It is difficult to sustain a case against Abram on that count. He he has been told uh, in Genesis 15:4 that the heir will be his biological son, and the the Hagar option does indeed give Abram a biological son. So Abram suffers as much from lack of specific information from God as we sometimes experience in our our decisions. Is he trying to help God out? Perhaps in a way, but mostly he is just trying to consider all the options. 
God has not indicated precisely how he will secure an heir for Abram. This is one of those cases where we can go far astray by trying to infer a course of action from Abram. If we conclude that it was wrong of Abram to get out ahead of the Lord instead of waiting on the Lord, we may find ourselves sitting on the sidelines for a lifetime waiting for God to act when in reality he is waiting on us to move forward with in faith. If he if if uh, if we conclude that Abram's experience teaches us to be proactive in designing creative courses of action, we may find ourselves straying from God's will. The text does not offer sufficient evaluation of Abram's actions in chapter 16 for us to adapt them in uh, and incorporate them into our lives as biblical teaching for our own behavior. So the first thing we all notice in chapter 17 is the name change of Abram to Abraham. It is only now, after nearly 25 years have passed since the first conversation in Haran, that God begins to ask for covenant responses from Abram as he begins the process of building a relationship that goes beyond God's making promises. In chapter 15, God had only given legal ratification on his promises. This remained one step away from relationship since it was still one-sided. By analogy, the situation is progressing from providing a notarized document to entering a business partnership. Genesis 17 verse 5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be Abraham. The name, meaning father of many nations, reflected Abraham's new relationship to God as well as his new identity based on God's promise of seed. In verse 9, we see that God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And we can see as you read through the entire Old Testament, despite repeated disobedience by the patriarchs, and the nation, uh, God's faithfulness to his covenant commitment never wavered. God remained faithful to his covenant, and though the nation was apostate, there was always an obedient remnant of faithful Israelites. All right, we're still talking about the Abrahamic covenant, of course, and we're also going to be talking a little bit about the sign of the covenant. Someone not familiar with the ancient Near East may read this passage and think that God thought up his new idea called circumcision to use as a sign for the covenant. Indeed, the text does not give the modern reader a hint that circumcision was practiced widely in the ancient Near East as a rite of puberty or marriage, though the Israelite reader was well aware of this fact. It was obvious enough to them that God was adopting a well-known sociological practice and adapting it for his unique theological function. When circumcision was used in relation to marriage, legal terminology suggests that it was performed by the new male in-laws, indicating that the groom was coming under the protection of their family in this new relationship. Isn't that interesting? 
And it, uh, it may not be coincidental that uh, this discussion comes when Ishmael is 13 years old. If circumcision, if circumcision were to be used for a rite of passage into puberty, this would have been the appropriate time for Ishmael to be circumcised. So we can imagine that Abram may even have been pondering whether this new nation uh, that he was fathering was supposed to practice circumcision or not. So although the Israelites are not the only people in the ancient, in the ancient Near East to circumcise their sons, what is unique in their practice is that the ritual is used as a theological rite of passage into the covenantal community rather than a passage into adulthood or a new family group through marriage. So waiting until the eight, eighth day to perform this ritual may reflect the high infant mortality rate and the desire to determine if the child was viable. The Hittites also had a ritual for the seventh day of the newborn's life. Circumcision can be seen as one of many cases where God transforms a common practice to a new, though not necessarily unrelated, purpose in revealing himself and relating to his people. As you probably know already, Abraham and Sarah had a similar reaction to uh, a biological son from Abraham, from Sarah, uh, that has not been born yet. Sarah's not pregnant yet, but they had a similar reaction. They both laughed. Remember, it has taken 25 years for Abram to receive complete information. First, God was going to make a great nation out of him in chapter 12. Then it was clarified that his heir would be his biological son in chapter 15. And now it is stated that the heir will also be the biological son of Sarah. And this now we're in chapter 17. So we can we can we don't need to judge uh, on Abraham's response of of laughing Um you know, Ishmael's already born, and and now we're God's still saying, but this is my plan. Think about in your life waiting on God. Now, where does this leave Ishmael? Now, the, this question can be lost if we fail to realize that for the last 13 years, Abraham has lived in the belief that Ishmael, the son of his, uh, the son of his old age, is the promised son, and and that God's covenant will be carried out through him. All of his love, all of his hopes, all of his dreams have been poured into this boy. And it is not unlikely that they have already discussed Ishmael's covenant destiny. Abraham has not been anxiously awaiting the arrival of another son. He would have not seen a, a need for another son, nor has God informed him otherwise. So, honestly, in some ways, this may not be... Um, great news to to Abraham in this moment. Probably deflating, probably sobering. Uh, so in response to Abraham's expression of concern, God extends certain of the covenant uh, benefits to Ishmael. He says he's going, he's going to be fruitful. He's going to give him 12 kings or 12 princes, 12 rulers, a great nation, basically 12 tribes, just like we know of Isaac, the 12 tribes um, coming from Jacob. But um, he also makes it clear that the covenant program is going to proceed through Isaac. 17 says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. 
Abraham said, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And to be quite honest, this is hard to believe. So this is a proper reaction. Um, this is God's promise. And uh, he he knew he was going to be a father. We saw that in previous chapters, chapter 12 and 15. But this was the first mention that his barren old wife was going to be a mother. Three visitors coming down the driveway to have a meal with Abraham and Sarah. Kind of. You may realize from this point now, Abraham was well acquainted with the Lord and would have instantly recognized him because the Lord had spoken and or appeared to him many times before. Those appearances include uh, the following occasions. So we're talking when God first called him, Genesis 12, when Abraham parted ways with Lot, Genesis 13, possibly when he met Melchizedek, we spoke about that in Genesis 14, when God made a covenant with him in Genesis 15, and as we just discussed, when God restated his covenant, Genesis 17. As we make our way into Genesis 18, we see three visitors coming to visit and meet with Abraham. It does in fact say in verse 1 that the Lord appeared. Another instance of a theophany or Christophany, although Abraham perhaps did not recognize at first that one of the visitors whom he humbly greeted and entertained and properly sent on their way was Yahweh. In verse 3, my Lord, he says, although perhaps first used as the customary respectful address of a host to a visitor, later in their uh, interchange it was used knowingly by Abraham of his true and sovereign Lord whom he must have recognized when the uh, visitor spoke of himself as Lord. And we see that in verse 14. Now, I want you to know that Abraham's treatment of these these men the men, uh, it has nothing to do with him recognizing them as supernatural uh, entities. So the bowing down, the foot washing, the, the food, the, the hospitality, that ha that's, that's, the, that's the culture. That's the culture. So it doesn't necessarily, I'm just saying that, I'm not saying whether Abraham recognized the second person in the Trinity or not. Of course, we believe he's had other meetings with um with god but those actions that's not what tells us in fact in in verse 9 in verse 9 where is your wife sarah this seems odd if the visitors were recognized simply as passing strangers they this is rude to pry in such a way and if they were recognized if abraham did recognize at least um, all three as an as angels or two angels and one um, second person in the Trinity as as a theophany or a Christology, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, as we say. Um, if if they were recognized as supernatural, they would have no need to ask for information, right? Where is your wife? Ah. 
but in two previous passages where God asked where someone is. Where, what, where did that happen? Genesis 3.9 and 4.9. And now we're in 18.9. No, there's nothing there about verse 9. I'm just, just a coincidence. It has not been with the intention of getting information, but of drawing a conversation to a point. So each time, Genesis 3, 9, 4, 9, and now in 18, 9, this is not to gain information that one does not have. It's to draw the conversation to a point. Specifically, this question is designed to invoke an admission. If the question is to be explained in, in this way in this passage, Abraham's response that Sarah is in the tent constitutes some sort of admission. Perhaps the question is prompted by the fact that Abraham, Abraham is waiting on them rather than Sarah. Think about the time period we're in. Think about the society, the culture. Abraham's waiting on them, not Sarah. So many have, asked, have guessed that Sarah is in the tent because it was not customary for women to eat with men when they were guests. But there's little evidence of such practice among the Israelites or in the ancient world. Why else should she, Sarah, be in the tent? One of the most common reasons for a woman to be confined in her house or the tent is because she was menstruating. Now hear me out. This seems to be um, ruled out for Sarah in that the text specifically indicates that she has gone through menopause, 18.11. Genesis 18.11, the same passage. Is it possible that the statement in verse 11 is intended to state a contrast. I mean, it's 1811. This is our chapter. So is it possible that it's there for contrast, for a specific reason? That is, that Sarah is reluctant, reluctant to interpret her symptoms as normal menstruation because her periods have ceased, leaving her without hope for having children. Now, if this is the case, the timing of this <laughs> must be very precise. In verse 6, Abraham asked Sarah to bake some bread. This is an activity, listen, often forbidden to menstruating women in Abraham's time, baking bread. So at the at the point, we will we'll have to assume her period had not begun. Now, she would not be uh, confined to her tent unless she actually started a period. If this is the issue, then, she had to have experienced the onset of her period as dinner is being served. It would have constituted a remarkable sign um, about the resumption of her fertility. So in making this suggestion, Walton says, I risk, the, uh, I risk being accused of the quote-unquote reading between the lines. 
The difference is that here I, Walton speaking, am trying to make sense of the elements in the text. Why Sarah is in the tent? Why the question is asked? And and what does this have to do with the oracle? Not simply is he indulging curiosities. He's really wondering um, the progression of the text. So what do you think these men look like? What do you think they discussed while supper was being prepared? So I'll just say this. This is a this is one option that, listen, the author obviously didn't uh, go into great detail about, uh, but that's okay. The author doesn't have to, and we're, we're, we are left with a lot of questions. That's okay. You know, we can only we can only assume so much before we tread into um, deep, difficult, scary waters. So um, Walton is just um, putting a an option out there. It it would be interesting though. Uh, Sarah's laughter. Remember, uh, Walton says Sarah's laughter is often a topic of conversation when this text is studied. Was her laughter a lack of faith? Why is she reprimanded for her laughter when Abram, Abraham is not confronted about this uh, in, the, in the previous chapter, 1717? 17. Why does she try to cover up the fact that she laughed? In the end, we should agree that the author has reason to dwell on the laughter because Isaac's name means laughter. But the above questions are still worth a moment of attention. The last is the easiest to deal with. The question posed by the guests suggests that the possibility that they have taken offense at her laughter. With so much at stake, she certainly would be anxious to avoid offending those who bring news so long awaited. Walton continues, both Abraham's and Sarah's laughter expresses um, something that we can find easily to understand, given the circumstances. It's not a lack of faith. And if you or I were put in that situation, I, I hope, <laughs> I know we wouldn't come down hard on us. I don't know why we do it to these two. But it's not a lack of faith. His, his Abraham's laughter is immediately followed by a statement that shows he accepts the pronouncement regardless of how unbelievable it is. He asks that Ishmael not lose favor. In contrast, Sarah's question is left hanging in the air and begging for a response. In verse 12, we see that Sarah laughed, just like Abraham did in the previous chapter. Verse 13, the line of questioning starts. The Lord uh, said to Abraham, he asked, why did Sarah laugh? Shall, and he goes on to quote Sarah, where Sarah's not even present, and he's quoting what she said. Sarah saying, shall I indeed, so as Sarah's laughing, this is her question, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? As she's laughing. So in verse 14, uh, uh, God says, is there anything too difficult for me or for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not. 
I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and he said, No, but you did laugh. So she was not thinking of divine miracle, but of divine providence, working only within the normal course of life, being convinced that at their age, bearing children was just not naturally possible. So the rhetorical question, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And divine declaration at the appointed time, verses 14 and 15, coupled with obvious knowledge of her thoughts, why did Sarah laugh, made Sarah fearfully perceive her um, total uh, mis uh, misperception of God's working. The question about why Sarah laughs is simply the, the lead into the more important statement of verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word translated, hard, H-A-R-D, here it's uh, not a quality, it's not a quality that can be connected to human endeavors. Even applied as a description of the temple, Second Chronicles 2.9, it refers to that, uh, it refers to that which goes beyond what human workmanship can attain. Proverbs 30, 18 and 19 speaks of four things that are beyond human understanding, though they are in the realm of human experience. The sense of the word goes beyond wonderful or astonishing to something more like mystical or supernatural. Here we see a clear statement of what the text is teaching about God. And just to wrap up everything we spoke about in this episode and maybe even previous episodes, remember circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Remember that Ishmael was circumcised uh, and God prompt Abra Abraham was, was concerned about him and his life. And remember uh, Hagar, the first time she, she went away from them, God has promised to uh, make him a mighty nation, uh, 12 princes, 12 tribes coming from him. But the circumcision is the, the blood covenant that's tied to the offspring, the seed of Abraham, the, the offspring that will, the offspring that will shed his blood. Remember, this all points to Christ. At the end of the day, Abra, Abraham's seed that was promised um, the offspring is going to uh, shed his blood. Uh, Jesus Christ is who we are speaking of, of course. Also with the covenant, the, the vehicle for begetting is marked. And it's in the nature of fruitfulness and multiplication. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Remember uh, when the ark rested and Noah and his family walked off the ark, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And now with this same, it's for it's in the nature of being of fruitfulness and uh, multiplication for the sake uh, of the covenant. And if you are against it, if you walk away from it, if you are not found in the covenant, you will be cut off. So, so what does circumcision mean for us today? Well, we're, we're circumcised of the heart. 
or circumcised of the heart. And so um, we can be, and, I, and I've said this before, we can be a son or daughter of Abraham. We don't have to be a Jew. You can be a Jew or Gentile and, and come unto the uh, covenant of, of Abraham by being by having circumcision of the heart, meaning uh, salvation through the offspring, through the seed, uh, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood. And so all of these themes uh, come together once you realize how important they are in the, the bigger picture. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the book of Jude. Next time we, we meet, next time you hear my voice, we're going to be talking about Genesis 19 in its entirety. Where we'll start the latter half of Genesis 18 when God and and um, Abraham have the conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to, this is going to be our last focus of the uh, problem passages um, as we've kind of journeyed along with Abraham as he has met God and has got how God has uh, chosen him to form his his nation uh, that will eventually become Israel. But one last time, we're going to look at uh, a part of this story, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I tell you right now, it's going to be very, very detailed. It's a very particular story that we must talk about. So until next time, as you go out, make disciples.